Whenever elite fighter Hazel Gale entered the ring, she felt fear. Not just the rational fear of being knocked out, but something deeper as well. The fear that she didn't deserve success, that she would let everyone, especially herself, down. While others saw a confident world champion athlete, Hazel was plagued by anxiety, self-doubt, and depression. It was these things, the monsters of her mind, that she felt were her most dangerous opponents, and she waged a war. It was that hard-fought internal battle that ultimately led to her burnout. Now the founder of the story-based wellness app Betwixt, Hazel is pioneering a new approach to digital mental health that she calls mindful entertainment. A sought-after London therapist, Hazel has created a revolutionary system for overcoming fear, underperformance, and self-sabotage. There is never a good time to confront the monsters that hold us back, but if we truly want to be our best selves, our highest performing, it begins with a deep level of self-awareness that our next guest has discovered through her own journey of life experience and now helps others to do the same in the most captivating and unique way that I've ever seen. Welcome back to season 10 of the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we connect the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning that's finally being taught in our schools today and emotional intelligence training used in our modern workplaces for improved well-being, achievement, productivity, and results. Using what I saw as the missing link, the application of practical neuroscience. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning and launched this podcast five years ago with the goal of bringing all the leading experts together in one place to uncover the most current research that would bring back how the brain learns best by taking us all to new and often unimaginable heights. For today's episode number 308, we'll be speaking with Hazel Gale. She's a former kickboxer and boxer with multiple world, European, and national titles. Her outward success, however, had a dark side. The stress of competition and relentless self-doubt drove her into an emotional and physical burnout that led to years of chronic illness. Hazel's eventual recovery inspired her to qualify as a therapist and a coach, and for over a decade, she's worked with high-level athletes, business executives, and others as a master practitioner of cognitive hypnotherapy, an evidence-based approach that combines elements of cognitive behavioral therapy, we know it as CBT, and traditional hypnotherapy with theories of modern neuroscience. Hazel's book, The Mind Monster Solution, was published internationally and became an Amazon bestseller in both mental health and psychology. Currently, Hazel is the co-founder and the chief creative officer of Betwixt. It's an award-winning app that blends psychology with interactive storytelling to make wellness feel like an adventure instead of a chore. I downloaded this app and I was blown away with what she's created here. If you want to learn more about who you are at the deepest levels, I highly recommend this app. 
I downloaded it for free and I was able to go through the first interactive story and experience the app before I decided to purchase it. You can continue your journey for free or gain lifetime access. I did purchase the app and I love what I saw and I'm curious what else I can learn from Hazel's journey of her mind. Now, when I was first introduced to Hazel, I was drawn to learn more from her story from the mental resilience side of her work. While we know that mental resilience is critical in the sports world, it's equally as important in most people's day-to-day -day life. Mental resilience is as crucial to my day as brushing my teeth. And when I'm struck with difficult situations, I feel like I already have a lot of tools available to me just from hosting this podcast. We were introduced to the Fisher-Wallace Brain Stimulator that was once our most listened to episode that helps keep anxiety at bay while also improving sleep. I'm clear about the benefits of exercise to combat stress and improve a student's academic achievement and help keep our focus in the workplace from our interview with Dr. Rady and his book, Spark, The Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain. I even bought myself a WHOOP device when I turned 50 to measure and track my sleep and recovery for the interview we did with WHOOP's VP of Performance Science, Kristen Holmes. I've got a clear understanding of how to eat the right foods and nourish my gut-brain access after our recent interview with Neurohacker's Dr. Kelly and a few episodes that we looked at building our mental resiliency with Horacio Sanchez. We've built a great list of tools and resources that go deep into combating stress, as this has been one of our main focal points for improving productivity in our schools, our sports environments, and our modern workplaces. We even met Erica first and discussed work burnout way back on episode 198. But what were we missing, I wondered, when I saw Hazel's work? And here's what it was. I've never met a world-class athlete who had to rebuild themselves and overcome the physical and emotional burnout that led their body to break down in the first place. What she's done to rebuild herself shows the high level of mental and physical strength that she holds within herself that can help anyone who needs to find a new pathway in life towards health and wellness with her model. She's the real deal. I only wish we could be in the same room for this interview because she has some talents that she knows she has that have taken her years to develop, but these talents are what she'll help us all bring out in ourselves. I do have some questions for Hazel that I'd like to know myself around building up my own mental strength. And I hope you find this interview helpful with Hazel's high level of understanding of what's needed to create the mental mindset needed at these high levels of sport that we can transfer into our own personal life experiences for heightened success. I know this is just the beginning of the journey, but I'm grateful to have had this chance to open the doorway of possibility that maybe we could all be much more than we currently are today. Let's meet this elite world-class athlete, Hazel Gale, and see what we can learn from her story that takes us from a confident champion to burnout and see how we can all rebuild ourselves from the inside out. Welcome, Hazel Gale. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Where exactly have I reached you? I am in London, East London. I've been here for 20 years. 
Wow. And such a rare sunny blue day today. Oh, it's sunny. Oh, very cold. Did you know I was born in Worthing, Sussex? No, I didn't. My mum was born in Sussex, lovely part of the UK. Yeah. My mum used to sing good old Sussex by the sea to me when I was a kid. Very cool. Well, well, I'm just thrilled to have been introduced to you, Hazel. When I saw you, I just thought I've got to speak with her. It was timely, um, what what we're going to uncover today. So before creating your questions, I had to kind of do a little bit of research because I do like to take the questions a little bit higher than you know what you might have been asked before, and and so I think that was evident with with uh, the questions I've come up with. But I listened to this episode you did with the Mind Muscle Project, and at the end of this episode, you really got me thinking about your book that we're going to get to. Uh, but I had no idea I'd be driving around and thinking about you know who am I really after you know starting on this journey of uncovering your work. So can you begin with an overview of your life and what happened to get you to where you are today with the focus on this story-based wellness app that we're going to get to? Let's yeah, I, I can try to do an overview of that. I mean, it's all over the place. So in, in, in brief, you know, I'm Hazel Gale. I'm, I'm a, a former athlete turned therapist, author, and now creator of Betwixt, which is a choose-your-own-adventure game that, that makes mental resilience epic. Let's, let's put it that way. But the... The journey to get there has involved lots of pain. <laughs> um, I get—I mean, I started out, I went to art school uh, for university. So I started out in that world, but I had absolutely no confidence in my ability to do any art. So when I left art school, even though I got a first and I got, I wrote one of the best theses, theses, theses that anybody had ever created at that art school, apparently, according to my professors, zero self-belief. So I stepped out of art school and went and worked in hospitality for a year, for a few years. And while I was there, I fell in love with this guy and followed him into a kickboxing gym, begrudgingly at one point. And it, it didn't work out with the guy, but that didn't matter because I completely fell in love with fighting in that moment to the point of excess. And my sort of obsession of, of, around fighting, which I'm sure I'll talk more about later, and the the onus and importance I put on winning and being this sort of champion person ultimately broke me. I burnt out physically and emotionally. And after trying lots of different psychological and medical ways of getting better, it was a cognitive hypnotherapist that actually managed to get me to click into the game of improving my perspective and my mental health. Um, and that changed everything. You know, I got back into the ring. I I got back to health, not full health. I don't think I've ever gone back to the health I had before the burnout, if I'm honest. But I got good enough to get back into fighting. Um, and then, you know, quit fighting peacefully, trained as a therapist, wrote a book about that whole journey. And now I'm creating this game, which brings everything together. And it's right back full circle around to the, the artistic and creative stuff as well. Well, it's been quite a journey. And I picked up on something because... I'm always focusing on belief, belief in yourself. And it, it started out that you didn't have belief in yourself in art school. Did you have belief in yourself as an athlete? I wonder, did what what happened with the burnout? How did I'm just trying to figure it out? No, I don't think I really had belief in myself. I think I was constantly chasing achievements and qualifications and accolade. You know, if I if I'd been if if I was younger, I would be adding things like Facebook likes and followers and things on that list. And that wasn't happening when I was at, at uni. But 
um, I was chasing all these things to prove to myself that I was worth something. And the thing is, when we do that, we never get what we're actually looking for with the chase. You know, we're only just constantly disappointed over and over again. And I think the reason the burnout happened during fighting was partly just because that was the point at which, you know, I was in my late 20s by that point. Um, you know, it was probably just the point where my body had had enough. But but also it was just this big exaggerated way of seeing this binary world that I was already living in, where either I was perfect or I was a failure and I was allowing myself no nuanced space in between those things. And so I was just hopping from situation to situation, trying to nail everything. And it was way too much. Right. Right. Yep. There's gotta be a point where we stop and, and I can see how you would keep going. And I even remember some part of your interview where you woke up and early morning and went to train because that's where you got your strength from. And I, I completely understood that, you know, I, I feel myself, I, I gained strength from the endorphins from exercise. And I think, you know, where, where's the point where it becomes dangerous and it's overtraining. Yeah, absolutely. And then to make that very clear for anyone listening who hasn't heard that other podcast, that wasn't me waking up at six in the morning and going training. That was me not being able to sleep at two o'clock in the morning. And instead of finding a way to get to sleep, heading down to the gym, letting myself in with my own keys and getting on the treadmill and running 10 miles. And the, I remember the cleaner, the late night cleaner walking past me and kind of tutting <laughs> as I was in there. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Another thing, you know, another story that that I think is really important in all of this, and, and it comes back into belief, was the point once I'd been through the burnout and I was coming back into myself and I was still competing at that point and I was warming up for the national championships in boxing and it just was different that whole warm-up to that whole competition was different even though I had a I'd broken bone in my wrist but I was training through it and it was fine and and as we were we were warming up that day I remember very clearly all of the fighters sitting around me with towels draped over their anxious anxious faces like each one waiting for their moment to fight and normally I would have been in that totally beside myself, dissociated place at this point. I would be questioning everything about my ability to do the fight, about my opponent. Somebody had told me that this, this girl I was going to fight was a big hitter. I would have been cycling over that. But on this day, I was present. I was present in my body as I warmed up. Like The way I always say it is I was listening to the sound of the song of the skipping rope as it whistled past my ears. And I can remember being embodied as I walked out to fight. The crowd was as if they had been like hushed by this crisp layer of freshly fallen snow. And the stillness in my mind was interrupted solely by this curious little voice that says, I've got this. But this was the interesting thing, because that wasn't this arrogant, overconfident voice of, I'm the best and I'm going to win this because I'm king of the world which is probably what I'd been aiming for all of that time when I wanted to be this champion warrior person. But the voice, this voice was different. It wasn't saying I will win this because I'm the best. It was saying, if I get in there and perform my best, and if that leads me to the win, I deserve it. So it, was, it wasn't self-belief in inverted commas that had made that difference. It was self-worth. I mean, you could you could you could quibble about the semantics there, and you could say that they're kind of the same thing in that situation. And I think you'd be right, but I, uh, for me, there's a subtle difference there that I found really important. And 
the other thing that happened on that day was when, when I did win and when my hand was raised, I felt this surge of very different alien emotion. Um, it was positive. You know, it felt like happiness or pride or just a sense of achievement, whatever it was. It was new because up until that point, whenever my hand had been raised, I'd hung my head and averted my eyes because I'd never felt that I'd deserved a sense of victory. I'd always been ready to write it off as fluke or chance. But on this day, because of that worth that I'd built, I was able to own the victory. And that just made it an entirely different experience. I picked up something that you said there, and it was about being in the present moment. You could hear the skipping rope. There's something where you're taking your mind away from, and, and I'm focused on this right now in, in a book I'm reading. You took your mind away from, you know, what happened in the past or what's going on in the future. You were in that present moment, which is where magic happens. And you took the, you, you weren't thinking about what, what have I done in the past? Where am I going? The pressure was off and you just were being. And then I got chills when you said that because now you've got this app that helps us to get in the present moment. And you talked about all these things. I could hear the app in you with that answer. So can you just maybe explain how the app ties into this, this being in the present moment that we all will help us for where we're going? So the, I mean, lots of ways. I mean, the, to, to put it very to give you an idea of what the app is first for anyone who doesn't hasn't played it as you have. So the app is a choose your own adventure story. It's a fat it's set in a fantasy world, a sort of weird and wonderful landscape that responds to your thoughts and feelings. And the only company you have in this place is this disembodied voice that speaks from somewhere in the back of your mind, who you gradually get to know and starts to ask you questions about yourself to help you to navigate your way through this space. And you start in this frozen white icy world and the voice explains to you that you know you're here to escape this strange numb world uh, but the only way to do that is to learn to see yourself clearly and so there are three things three basic wins for a player of the game in terms of the psychological benefits and they are self-awareness self-compassion and emotion regulation and throughout the game, we go through different processes and different questioning uh, sort of sequences to help people build on those three skill sets. And of course, those things come together um, to create just overall wellness. Um, so in terms of the present moment stuff, you know, so much of that, we, we escape into the future, we escape into the past. Almost always, that's not a, in fact, not even almost always, always, that is an uncomfortable experience for us. Uh, we do it for coping. We think that we are solving our problems by thinking them through a million times. We think that we can kind of solve past problems by going back and reliving them, not consciously, but unconsciously, that's what's going on. And so we do all that stuff to avoid the experience of now because we don't really like who we are in the now. And so here's where my whole journey with fighting comes into it. I had to learn not just to be present, you know, if, if I had just gone and done a mindfulness course, maybe I would have done amazing things with that. But for me, it was a bigger undertaking to actually just get to the place where I could like myself enough to be present with who I am, where I am right now. Um, And so the game will help you to do that 
partly by making it a very sensory experience. You've got this immersive sound that brings you into these questions and you are encouraged to sit with them and be with your thoughts and feelings and your uh, your experience of life to play the game. So it trains you in that way. But ultimately, it also helps you to build up the sense of self, a more authentic sense of self for many people, out of these questions you wouldn't normally ask yourself, to lead you into a place where you can like that person as well as know them. So now, before I did these interview questions for you and I listened to that podcast, I took 13 pages of notes. I just was like, I feel like that should be the first thing people listen to. That's why I put it in the in the show notes for people. But as I was learning about everything you've learned from your kickboxing, then I thought, you know, well, how did she go and create this app where it's all about understanding who we are and looking back? And so I just wonder, you know, where was that aha moment of truth for you where you kind of thought, this is what I'm meant to do? You know, you can look back. It wasn't the kickboxing. Where was it that you decided that you're going to now help people? Ah, I think it's because you're right. It wasn't the kickboxing, but of course that played this important role in it. But you know what I think is interesting? When when I was started fighting, a couple of months into it, I remember suddenly remembering that I used to have these like fantasies of being this sort of warrior person. Like in my teens, instead of dreaming of the perfect wedding or thinking about getting an amazing job or whatever it was, or being a rock star, whatever it was my friends were probably thinking about, I wanted to be the person who saved somebody from a mugger in the street. I don't know where that came from because I came from a very academic family. My dad was, you know, a stamp collecting genetic engineer. My mum was a bird watching bacteriologist. So this fighter was not a part of their blueprint for daughter. But nonetheless, here this sort of long-standing fantasy was that suddenly came back to me when I was fighting. Now, if I look back on my time fighting retrospectively now, I can see that all of that was this promise. There was a promise of being uh, strong, dominant, impressive, and impenetrable. And I do not use that word lightly. Um, And that I think was what, you know, fight. that's why I had such an unhealthy relationship to fighting was because I was trying to achieve that, which was, unachievable and would be unhealthy even if I had achieved it of course stupid but that was what I was looking for and so when I burnt out in fighting the important thing in all of that wasn't to come back after a burnout and win titles and feel you know amazing that that was cool but the important thing was that it brought me face to face with the lies I'd been telling myself about what was important about who I was about what really mattered to me you know therapy and burnout shook all of that stuff out of me. And there was no light bulb moment for me because that is a long and torturous process. I it was it was a long process of having a realization, hating the realization, trying to cover the realization up, trying to turn it into something else, trying to rationalize, having the realization all over again, up and down and around and digging and scrambling and everything until things finally came into into a place where they made sense, which was around that time of that fight I just told you about. Um, So I guess for me, the experience of going through all of that, which was difficult, but the stuff that helped me with it, 
um, was so creative. And I don't think I would have got there without it being a visual yet logical style of therapy. Um, I loved that I was allowed to engage with metaphor and imagery to, to ask myself these questions and to come up with answers that I wouldn't have come up with if I was limited to just verbal expression. I'm sure about, I'm sure about that. So when I, when my life changed and I realized that I, I was less about valuing being an impenetrable, dominating presence, and I was more interested in, um, introspection and self-awareness and helping people and connecting with people it made sense to switch over and you know train as a therapist and and to make that my life but because I have this you know love of it all being so creative as well as logical and because as well since then I have been diagnosed with ADHD which now makes complete sense that I needed it to be that way I have just been obsessed with these projects like my book and like Betwixt where we get to do things a little bit out of the box for people like me who need it that way and wouldn't necessarily resonate with the more bog standard therapy offerings and digital offerings. So what I loved about all of this is that it's all research-based. So you're picking out these things that were never taught to us in school. So you see the name of my podcast, Neuroscience Meets SEL. So I was on a quest for the first, I don't know, 15, 20 years of my work to make sure SEL goes into our schools. We weren't taught how to be self-aware. So you get this. Now you're aiming with your story to help people who still didn't get these skills in their lifetime to learn them in the most creative way I've ever seen. That This is why I'm blown away with what you've created because it ties into my work's passion and you're 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 hitting a group that I never thought of. I I when I was looking through the app and feeling everything you're doing, and then seeing the research, you you, where did you get your understanding of the competencies? Like for for us, there's a, a group in the U.S. called Castle, and they have six competencies like self awareness, um, self regulation. Where where did you get your research from, and how did you tie that in? I just am curious. I mean, it was long. It was a long process. We, we've been developing this game for four years and there's two of us making it. There's, there's, there's myself, of course, um, and my training and my experience. And then my co-founder, Ellie, who's a science writer. And we had a lot of overlaps. You know, she had been doing a lot of research on um, self-distancing, which was the main emotion regulation tool that we have engaged with in the game. You know, the whole thing is really an exercise in self-distancing, but we've also got very obvious processes where people learn how to self-distance healthily and how it can help them in the game. Uh, so, you know, her research met my research and then we have written so many versions of this game. It's been about trying to put in the things we know that have helped from all of our uh, collect, uh, collective research and finding ways to make it work in the game, uh, in the story that doesn't feel wrong. That's why it's taken four years. You know, a lot of people might play this and some people play the whole game in a day. I mean, that's at least sort of 16, 17 hours worth of really quite intense work done in a, in a day. So it's not intended to be done that way. But I always think when somebody does that, that they must be, they must be like, what do you mean it's taken you four years to, <laughs> to build this? But it's really hard to get right. But, you know, the most important thing about all of this, and I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent from your question, but I hope it's okay. The, is, is the importance of story. 
the mind is made to understand things through story. You know, that's what we do. That's how we've learned and how we've communicated since the beginning of our evolution um, as speaking and thinking beings. Um, yet in this world which of mental health, where we are arguably learning the most important skills of our lives, you very rarely see it wrapped up in story. We don't get to learn it that way that often because it tends to be logically laid out for us, um, which is fine, but it's not going to stick. I mean, how many times have you read a self-help book or something and you read all of it and you gobble it all up and you like all the stats, but when you go to tell somebody about it afterwards, the thing that you parrot off is an anecdote or a client case study or something. The bits in story stick. They're the ones who get in and not just to our logical brains, but to the rest of us. So we wanted to take these evidence-based tools from this whole world of research and insert them into a story so that they could actually be a part of the narrative that will hopefully stick on this sort of much deeper level. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. So I, I'm just loving every everything you've done here. And so just moving into the next question, I we, we've talked about how kickboxing was almost the end of you. And I related because, you know, who I, it, when you have someone come stay at your house and watch what you do on a daily basis, I had someone say, why are you, why do you get up every day and, and run up this mountain? And it's just something that I've always done. And, you know, I've got this whoop device that I that I measure. I know those guys that interviewed you, they were all into whoop. And for a year, it would say, you know, not enough sleep, too much strain. But I didn't know how to go about my day and sit and do hard work without overtraining. I, I wouldn't know how to do it without exhausting myself. So, you know, there's a lot of self-discovery in me that, uh, that I'm getting from your story. So... At what point did you understand the mind and how you get to the depth of, you know, the iceberg analogy, um, you know, getting into what's really going on here with your behavior? Because sometimes someone might notice what you're doing. This this fellow that was staying at the house asked me and I thought, yeah, I don't know why I do it. it, mm. it just, and then when I saw it in your story, I thought, why am I doing this? Is there another way I could get energy for my day other than overtraining? Which is the ideal question, isn't it? Because when you look at, I mean, when you look at anything that we do that you might call self-sabotage, and I'm not saying the, the mountain running thing is necessarily that, but, but you know, anything that, let's look at the obvious one, smoking, comfort eating, all of these habits, the types of habits we have and that persist. And yet every time we do them, we're like, why am I doing this? Um, at the root of every one of those habits is usually some kind of fear or insecurity, but definitely a positive intention. You know, when I wrote my, my book, the idea was to help people to learn how to understand and sort of befriend the parts of themselves that they'd otherwise just try to throw away. And one of the most important things that we need to do on that journey is to recognize the positive intention behind the self-sabotaging choices because a bad habit, in inverted commas, is only ever uh, a poor strategy for achieving something that we want anyway. And so the simple way of looking at it is to look at, is to work out what the intention is and to find other ways to satisfy it. 
If we find an actual healthy way to satisfy the positive intention, we can let go of the ineffective strategy. That's one of those things that's easier said than done. And one of the reasons it's easier said than done is because another player in this is what we have conditioned ourselves and what we have been conditioned to think of as the, in inverted commas, right ways to do things or the impressive, important ways to do things. So let's say that running up the mountain, the intention behind that was to feel free or healthy or or whatever. You know, strong. strong, right, strong. Physically strong or emotionally strong or both? Both because of the energy from the mountain and then from the strength that I would get from doing the same thing every day. Yeah. Oh, from doing the same thing every day. Oh, I know. So that's interesting. I, I, so there's yeah. two, you want to be breaking, breaking that down as well, because there'll be so many things that could achieve those intentions. Um, the problem is that we hero worship these certain methods and certain activities and certain ways of being because somewhere along the line, we've decided that's, you know, that's what we should be. Um, And so that kind of misplaced value, because usually that when we look into where these, you know, where these kind of values came from, it, they aren't authentic. They have been learned at some point, usually as a coping mechanism or just from the world we've grown up in or, because of the parents we've grown up to, all that sort of stuff. Um, And so we have to start to unhook the things that have been controlled, the values that have been controlling us, as well as the fears and the needs at the base of these things, and let them all be separate, and then start to reorganise reorganize them. Um, That's all ended up extremely abstract. The simple thing is, there's no never only one way to achieve something. Once we've worked out what it is we're trying to achieve and we can understand why it is that we're valuing that we open up a whole new way of of seeing it but it's a long process it is definitely and and I, I I just think of myself like when I was saying that in my head you know I do the same thing over and over again this fellow that was at the house was like why are you doing the same thing and I knew if I said to you you know, I do this thing every day because it gives me energy. I knew that you'd remember from your side of things what doing the same thing every day did to you. And so th- now we're digging deeper into the iceberg and trying to uncover. And and it's not easy because I remember when he said this, I was thinking, well, gosh, like lazy you, go sleep in your bed and criticize the fact that I'm mm-hmm. getting up and doing something. Like I remember that it was a defense mechanism in my head. And then I thought, you know, just listening to Dr. Andrew Huberman, when I get defensive, what what am I getting defensive about? So now I'm like, what's wrong with with what I'm doing? What could I, how could I maybe look at things differently? And now I'm thinking at a different level than I've ever thought before, really going down deep. Defensiveness is the, is the perfect yeah. signal to follow, isn't it? It's so good. Yeah. And Something I find, I think is really, really key as well is to recognize we're talking about the level of belief here. You know, obviously we have beliefs that are really, most of our beliefs are unconscious until we have made them conscious. They are just deep set systems of knowledge that we can pick up very early on. They feel it's so ingrained that they just feel true. You know, you cannot argue against them until you do. And the thing about fear is fear is, fear is on the same level as belief. Now, something I I find very helpful is to remember that we can only have a fear if on some level we believe it to be true. So if somebody has a fear of spiders, 
They can't maintain that fear of spiders unless some part of them genuinely believes that the spider can kill them or do whatever else it is that, that the fear has come from. So even if their conscious adult mind knows that it's just a little spider, you know, I'm in the UK, spiders don't kill you here. Um, even though the conscious self knows that, there is still some part of them that believes in it. That's quite easy to understand with the spider fear. But if we start to talk about fear of failure, fear of humiliation, fear of um, attachment to people, connection, intimacy, these more, well, intimate fears that we have. If we are doing things based on that kind of fear, and we'll know that through what we get defensive about, then there must be some part of us that genuinely believes that we are a failure or unlovable or whatever it is that connects with the thing for you. Now, that's not a bad thing. Like we, uh, that just makes us human and it makes us not psychopathic. Like that's all totally fine. But we need to uncover that information in order to recognize the reasons for certain patterns of behavior and in order to change those patterns of behavior. You know, that for me, that's the monster story at the, at the root of whatever it is we're looking at. And you need that bit of information. That's exactly my next question is, you know, thinking about the mind monster solution, how to overcome self-sabotage and reclaim our life. We don't ever sit down and think, you know, how am I self-sabotaging? <laughs> so when when I looked at your book and 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 some of the other uh, places that you have on your website, uh, mindmonsters.online, where you can draw your mind monsters, I was just thinking, you know, what what do you want other people to get from your book and how do we bring out what our monsters are? I'm just trying to figure out what mine are. It's not very clear yet. I mean, so I've met lots of people who have who've read the book a number of times going with a different kind of idea for the monster each time. And they said that they have got completely different information out of it. And the same with the game. It's a monster in betwixt as well. It's not exactly the same process, but the same idea is that we are bringing to light these shadowy parts of the self that we have otherwise been just probably too afraid to really look at. Um, the idea with the Mind Monster Solution it was to help people create a visual in the first place to recognize, re represent this part of the personality that is either in fear or in anger or, or doing some kind of uh, inconceivably unhelpful thing repeatedly. Um, and the, the point of visualizing it is to give it some boundaries and kind of give it the illusion of a personality. I mean, it's just a part of you, but it's very hard to empathize with a part of you that you that you have associated with something very painful or problematic. Uh, full stop. That's a hard thing to do. It gets much easier if you can start to give it a name and a form and you can start to point at it and say, OK, it's here or it lives here or I've got it in the palm of my hand. It starts to become a much easier thing to do. The book was designed to help people start with that and then to keep checking back in on their visualization, because as you piece together the information, you know, what's the story at the root of this? What's the fear at the root of this? What are the values connected to this? You know, where did this part come from? At what point in my life did I start believing? When you start giving, filling in the blanks, the visualization changes. And that's really beautiful because people start to go, holy moly, because you start with, in fact, I can get you to do this right here. You put your hand out in front of you like this. And you think of a self-sabotaging thing. Let's choose the running up the mountain every morning. And you imagine 
the part of your personality that creates that behavior sitting on your hand. And then you just ask yourself if you could see that part of the personality, what would it look like? And you go with absolutely anything that comes to mind. Do you, do you want to share? Yeah, definitely. Well, because I've been doing this work for 25 years, I know what is at the root of it, but I never saw it like this. It's always, I'm not good enough. So I yeah. do double the work in everything. I do double the work to get me more energy, double the work in my day. I'm not good enough. It just deep root from things that well-intentioned people said growing up, you know, you'll never amount to anything. They didn't have the tools or know what that would do to a young kid, but yeah. We've all had those experiences, sometimes in big capital T trauma situations and sometimes from, as you say, well-intentioned, but, you know, even, not even that people have said something in the wrong way necessarily. Sometimes it's just been at exactly the wrong moment and we've just interpreted it in the way that's turned it into fear. And then we live our whole lives based on that fear, constantly looking for things. And we just say, if I can just get that, then I'll feel okay. Wow. But we, but we don't because we get it and we go, oh obviously that wasn't good enough after all and then we just write off our entire achievement we say but if I get that next thing then I'll feel okay now that is the treadmill that we always talk about that two at 2 a.m in the morning running on a treadmill in the gym is the perfect metaphor for that running and running and running wearing myself out more and more and more weakening myself even though I'm chasing strength all for goalposts goalposts that will constantly move we never get no achievement ever gets us to to change our internal state. That is a job that we need to do differently. That's amazing. Cause I, I was still trying to figure this out, but you made it very clear with having to see it. And, and would you say that we all, like, what would be some common ones? I'm not good enough. I've heard that from so many people. What would be some common monsters that, that you see? I mean, the really big ones are, of course, I'm not good enough. Um, I'm not lovable. I'm not likable. I'm a bad fill in the blank. I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad sister. I'm a bad friend. Um, and then the sort of slightly lesser versions of those things, like, uh, which are more sort of ability-based. Like I'm not creative. I'm not sporty. I'm not musical. Um, none of these things are ever fundamentally true. Right. Nobody is just, just not creative. What they mean is I'm not good at drawing or I haven't draw, done enough drawing to have created any skill for it yet because I've never thought I was good enough at it. What they really mean, it's a very different idea to I'm not creative. But we, because we learn these things early, we turn them into these big absolute ideas and then we carry them around as if they're true and they inform everything. And the problems, the problematic behaviours and feelings and thoughts that grow out of these are so uncomfortable to us that we try to push them away and shut them out. And that's why that's why the monster is called a monster. You know, I, I did that that exercise I did just now with you and the, the part on the hand. And when you get people to visualise what that part is, sometimes they'll see like a version of themselves. Sometimes they'll see a little gremlin or goblin type creature. But most of the time they see something totally amorphous and undefined, like a blob of slime. I remember people well, people often say something like a dog poo or a black cloud and if you ask them that same process of a part of themselves that they really value and like that they think of as a strength they find it much easier to come up with this amazing metaphor for it we don't do that with the monster because we just don't want to engage with this part of the personality we want to obliterate it but just because that's what we want to do doesn't make it an effective strategy because 
as every self-help book that you've ever read will have told you, what you resist persists. If we try to push these parts away or hide them or deny them or fight with them as I did, they just get bigger and more monstrous. The idea is to change our perception so we can invite these parts back in. Because here's the really interesting thing. No matter how difficult the problem is that has grown out of a part like this, we've already covered that it has positive intention, but it also has resources that we are shutting away by trying to push it out. And people find that quite hard to recognize at first. And if I was doing this in the therapy room with somebody, I'd usually have them looking at two parts at once, the, the kind of opposites. So let's say that, you know, the part that comfort eats, and often they'll see that as a sort of huge, fat, kind of slobby creature on a sofa, and they'll be wanting to throw it away or kill it. And then the opposite part will be the part that wants to get up and run up a mountain every morning. And it will look like this sort of like super buff, super healthy version of themselves, like them on a good day, like 100% person. And they will be in this polarized situation where they're saying, this one's good. I want this one. This one's bad. I need to get rid of it. And we think that this bad part, in inverted commas, is the problem, but it isn't. It's the conflict between them that's the actual issue. That's the binary world of winner or loser that I was talking about earlier on. That's not what life is like. And if you get people then to actually ask the question about both the parts, we start, you know, with this sort of superhuman woman. What does that part, what that, what are that, what's that part's strengths and resources and skills? Quite easy to answer that question. She's determined. She's strong. She knows what she wants, blah, blah, blah. Then you ask some somebody about the same question about the other side. And usually there's a blank at first. But after a very short period of time, they start to go, well, hang on a minute. Actually, yeah, I suppose this part is quite good at looking after me. She's just trying to give me time to relax. And this part actually can also be quite funny. You know, uh, it's quite good at connecting with people. And this part's much better at being vulnerable and honest about my feelings than this part. And you start to see that you have not just been trying to shut out a behavior by shutting out this part of the personality. You've been trying to shut out a whole side of your personality, a whole set of resources um, by trying to sever that off and become this impossible version. What we actually need in that situation is for both of these parts to come together and form some kind of compromise to begin working together to, to pool their resources and, and get to the positive intention in a better way. Um, a, a wonderful thing happens in the therapy room when you do this sometimes. If, people, if somebody had been sitting there with their hands out in front of them with the parts on either hand like this, at the point when they realize that really they want these parts to come together, very often the hands unconsciously start moving together. And it's such a beautiful thing because usually it starts to happen before the, the client has even realized it. And you can just go, hey, look what's happening. Now, this is not magic. It's just this idea of the whole body has got on board with the metaphor. It's made sense. And so your body is sort of even before you've realized it, started trying to move the hands into the same place. It's wonderful. And that, again, for me, is a wonderful example of how story and metaphor and imagery get these things to make sense in a way that logic and exclamation, explanation and reasoning just don't quite do it. This is this is good. So when I was looking at your mind monsters dot online and seeing all these drawings, I was trying to think, you know, where do I draw out what mine would be? So if you were if you were thinking, you know, if I was sitting with you in the same room, and I've got the I'm not good enough, I draw it into a monster. 
And then I draw out maybe like trying to bring it in the good, the good part of the running up the mountain, you know, trying to find the balance. And, and then here I go to the, the whoop telling me, you know, you're, you need more rest. So this year, 2023, I stopped going every day and I try to get more balance. And so sometimes I get balance, but it's trying, like you just said, bringing the, uh, the, the negative to find the balance. So what would you say to me or anyone that has identified their monster? They draw it out. They know what it is. Now they've got to identify the positives and the negatives to get the balance. Is that the next step? I think the next, what happens after that is this usually, you know, incremental journey of recalibration. And that for some people can happen relatively quickly. And for some people, it's a, it's a long journey. Like I was saying earlier on for me, that was that long begrudging journey where I'd started to recognize all these things I didn't want to be true. And it took me a while, like at the teething period to actually accept those things weren't true and that other things were true for me. Um, and, you know, the way we do it is by checking in, is by building the self-awareness, is by being, taking, you know, ownership and taking responsibility for the things we do and the way we act. Because another thing you'll recognise is the way that we we tend to respond to the mistakes we make is we try to disown them. We do that automatically. We say, I don't know what came over me or, oh, I wasn't myself. Now, every time we do that, we just give the power away because we are not owning it. So if if we flip that on its head and decide to take responsibility for everything and give anything, no matter how small, every moment of defensiveness, no matter how small, uh, the, the, the importance it might have, then we build up a sense of self which is closer to what, to who we really are and what we really are than the fake self that we were trying to be before. And how long it takes us to move from still feeling in love with the fake self to being the real self is a kind of piece of string type question. Um, but it only happens by building up the awareness and you know putting that putting in the graft. What I like that you said in that other interview, you said, you know, that if I'm having these challenges that I'm getting defensive about, and I'm the common denominator, I've had this challenge before. The co common denominator is me. And I thought that could be a book that could be like, you know, the common denominator of me or something. So now we're getting to look at ourselves in a different way. Maybe there's something in me that I need to look at differently, which is shocking because I'm so perfect, right? <laughs> you know, uh <-huh. laughs> it's just the most shocking thing that now we can see how we can change and be better versions of ourselves. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, because it sounds like such a negative thing, isn't it? That sounds like a negative thing at first. Well, hang on a minute, I'm the problem here. Yeah. But actually, the moment of realizing that is the most empowering thing you could possibly do, because if you weren't the problem, you couldn't change it. Yeah, 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 true. Interesting. Interesting. So, so this has been a phenomenal journey just to get your life experience here. 
I wanted to just touch on something that I picked up because you've developed superpowers over your time of doing this, this app and looking at your journey. And I just wonder, could you pick out something that, that you think you've developed that really helps you to be more of yourself? I'm just curious what you would say. I think I've got a, yeah, a, couple, a couple of things have just come to mind for that. First of all, First of all, I mean, it's not fair to say superpowers. I wouldn't call them superpowers. I'd call them human powers. And I think one of the, the most beautiful and important thing that, things that come out of therapy or trauma or you know any kind of journey we have to come back from a breakdown is that when we do the work to get in touch with who we really are and when we get back in touch with the emotions we've been de- denying and we start to understand these beliefs that have been generating behavior, all that stuff, we not only learn to empathize with ourselves, but we also start to learn to empathize with other people. And so I would say that that is the biggest gift to come out of this. And I didn't realize I was missing it until I had it finally. I didn't know that I was doing friendship so badly. I didn't know that I was doing family so badly um, because I didn't know how to connect with anyone because I didn't even know how to connect with myself. And the other thing that I could, there was something else that popped into my mind. Of course, it's disappeared now. But another thing that just, just came to me now that's really important to mention when we're talking about monsters is that you know the whole section in my book on, on metaphor and the importance of imagery and how different words for things will influence the way we feel without us even realizing it. And so if we keep thinking of the part of ourselves that we see at the root of these problematic things as monsters, then we are setting ourselves up for a difficult situation. And I had this this problem when I was writing the book. So the monster metaphor was a vehicle for the book. Parts therapy and everything in it, I'd been practicing for years. But I wanted to come up with a way of describing it in the book um, that would be nice and visual. I chose monster. Now, I was halfway through writing the book, and I started thinking, I can't have it still called a monster at the end because of the importance of words. But I didn't really know how I was going to change it yet. And I'd been thinking about this for weeks. At some point during this time, I picked up, I found an old, I was probably procrastinating and tidying something up, and I found my old art school thesis, which is this sort of philosophical thesis. And because I was writing my book and I'd feeling, I was feeling quite proud of some of the stuff I'd been writing, I thought smugly that I was going to pick up the thesis and see how much better of a writer and how much wiser and better I was now than I used to be all these 20 years ago or whenever it was. But the opposite happened. So I started reading the thesis and I just, it was so clever. I didn't understand any of it. I was like, I don't even know what half of these words mean anymore. I haven't got cleverer. I've got stupider. So I had a little panic before I caught myself and realized that, that I was having a panic and I needed to talk to myself about this. Went through to my kitchen to boil a cup of tea and calm down. And as the kettle was boiling and after I'd just sort of put my fear to rest and had a little laugh about, you know, this big old monster moment in the middle of writing a book about monsters. As the kettle was boiling for that post-realization cup of tea, what popped into my head was that the word monster is an anagram for the word mentors. And I was like, that's it. That's the answer. And at first I was annoyed that monster was an anagram of the word mentors, plural, but then I realized that even that was a good thing because what we do is we turn all these sort of little instances of a certain behavior into one big monster. Whereas if we choose to look at it differently, if we choose to rearrange the letters that form that word and re- give us a different perspective to view the problem, 
It's not one big monster, but a series of lessons. It's a series of teachings. So that is the reframe that we want to take from all of this. Instead of why is this thing plaguing me? It's what is this thing asking me for? What's the intention? What's the need? What can I learn here? That's what makes the change. And then I just love your Betwixt app for mental health. I downloaded it um, and I did a couple of the stories and it, it, for me, it brought me back to the fact, like, I, I could see the intentionality behind all of it. You know, you turn it on and you're listening and I could hear the blizzard. Now I left Toronto, um, 2001, right before September 11th happened in the U S I left the cold for the sunny skies of Arizona. And I did it for the year round exercise, which just shows you how, for how long I've been stuck in, in that mindset. But uh, that was one of the reasons that brought me here. And I'm listening to your app and I'm hearing the snow and I'm, it's bringing me back to like going to school and walking uphill. And, and I, you know, I tell my kids all the time, we had these boots and the wind would be pushing us back and, and I could feel it in the app. And, and so I was just wondering who is the narrator? What am I supposed to be paying attention to? What was the whole intentionality of you creating the app? What should I be learning so that I make sure that I'm getting it all? I mean, it, it probably isn't an instruction to give people around this because everybody will get something different from it. I mean, you've just illustrated that so perfectly with your particular memory of, of Toronto. And I love the metaphor that came into that, by the way, because we chose this frozen word as this frozen world as a metaphor for kind of that pre-awareness state that we have with any problem before we've done the work on it. You know, it's just numb. Um, but it also gives this, you know, that there's that windy resistance thing going on as well, which you've just illustrated so well, walking up a hill in snowshoes with the wind trying to push you back down again. That's very often what it feels like when we're trying to make a change. But the snow world is only there for a few dreams. And without wanting to spoil anything too much, you know, there is a lot of very different, much more colourful stuff going on underneath that ice once it melts. Um, and, you know, the whole game is designed to engage people's creative imaginations in a way that that they create. Like the whole, We wanted the player to be the co-author in as, when, as many ways as possible when they play this game. And it does happen in lots of ways. I mean, first of all, they imagine the world differently. This is a text-based game for a reason. You know, we could have made a visual game and prescribed the world, but it would be far less effective. The idea is that you create this world for yourself. And of course, then you create the world that you create, not the one that we've, ma we've made for you. And also you write in your answers to the questions at which you do increasingly through the game. And those then get fed back in the game, sometimes as part of the world, Sometimes it's just a part of the conversation with this voice who can then do what any therapist will do, which is sort of parrot back the things you're saying, which gives you this ability to go, oh, that is a weird way to say this. Or, oh, my God, yeah, I was feeling that way on that day. Isn't that interesting? So the whole thing is this exercise in, in reflection and everything and, and authorship and imagination and being part of it. And the overarching sort of change that the, the client that the client not the client the user the player the, the the person who's using the game goes through is they start out as a character like a puppet in this story that they don't have control over but quickly they start to take control of that they level up to hero in a big battle at some point in the middle of the game i'm not going to say too much about it because i don't want to spoil it 
but you would think that going from being the puppet like character to the hero would be the full journey but it isn't because hero was what i was trying to be when i was trying to win be dominant and win all my fights hero is what you're doing when you are slogging up that mountain every morning hero is where we're in the binary world where we either win or we lose and if we accept the idea of the hero's journey as a metaphor for internal change then we are saying that there are monsters inside of us that we need to vanquish because that's what the hero does kills the dragons and that's not enough it doesn't get us where we need to be so we have to go one step further and what is further well there's two levels further in the game first is author where you get to write your story not be the hero of it and the next is architect which is a level up even where you get to create your own world and so that whole metaphor of sort of like which role do we play in the story of our lives is the kind of meta thing that's going on. I haven't answered the question about how you're supposed to play or what you're meant to think of when you play because there's so much going on and it would be so different for everybody and different dreams will mean totally different things and different dreams will be people's favourites. But really all I would say to anyone playing is keep your mind open. And this is not a therapy app that is going to give you advice quite the opposite it is going to allow you to come to your own conclusions about things um which in my mind is 10 times more powerful than being given advice um so you don't come to it expecting to be you know it's not it's not a mindfulness program it's not a it's not a cbt app it's it's a self-reflection journey and and i'm the one that's doing the work and thinking yeah and connecting and and i've got to ask like who is the narrator because they said something about i i like how you humans think i'm thinking are they non-human or uh, i don't know what they are i'm not going to tell you that because (laughs) i I mean everybody comes to their own conclusions about that all right and it's a kind of yeah important part of it i'll keep going then well (laughs) hazel this has been phenomenal uh, a deep dive into the depths of your soul and my soul and then i hope the people listening get your app and start really thinking about who they are is there anything important that i've missed with these questions that that you think we we've not covered or do you think we've really gone deep into it all you you tell me i don't think so yeah giving myself a moment to see if anything comes up, but I, I think we've covered a hell of a lot, actually. We have. The The only thing that, that I wanted to say was the vulnerability piece, because you brought it up in the other interview. And I think it's important because it's extremely difficult sometimes to be vulnerable and say, you know, um, with, with your whole fighting story, you know, and then with the fact that I feel like, um, there's got, what, what am I looking at? Why am I doing this? What, how can I be more vulnerable with myself to maybe get a deeper level and more strength? And so I think this app allows us to see, you know, maybe what our monsters are, be vulnerable with ourselves and, and connecting yeah. Renee Brown's work because she does it so well, but just that piece I think is, is a good place to end. Yeah. And I would say that when we were talking earlier on about the monster, the parts that we push away, the monsters, resources and skills, vulnerability is almost always on that list. Because the reason we push it away is because we don't want to admit whatever weakness that we imagine to be a part of it. And so the process of inviting it back and 
redesigning our way of seeing it and integrating it back into our lives, which means it changes, is the process of accepting our vulnerabilities, our true selves, our authenticity, um, which is, you know, that's the special source really. That's what turns you into someone who can connect with other people. That's what turns you into someone who can make out of the box things and be creative, like, because it is at the root of all those things. So yeah, the vulnerability is really part of all of it. It's really the, it's the thing. Hazel, I want to thank you so much for your time today to meet with me and sharing your fascinating story of how you rebuilt yourself really from the inside out with myself to help me and then the audience who listens. I knew there was so much that I could learn from you. And, and this is a life's journey. It's it's not over. The work is beginning. Um, I'd like to go back and take more time of introspection with, with your app and and what I'm going to uncover. And, and I'll probably do some sort of follow-up after I've gone through everything so that I'll tie it back to this, but perhaps, you know, what I've learned from going through the Betwixt app and, and I'll connect it to this one. But I just want to thank you so much. Um, for people who want to reach out to you, uh, tell me what is the best way and, and, you know, anything else, any other programs or services that you offer. Um, lots of ways to reach out to us. I mean, social media wise, we are the, our, our most populated place is, is TikTok, where, and the handle is at betwixt.app. Uh, same handle on Instagram. Um, we have a Discord server, and that's where our community lives. And regardless of whether or not you're playing the game already, you are more than welcome to come in there. We run um, weekly sort of challenges and self reflection tasks in there. You can find the link to that by clicking the link tree in our. Um, there's an invite in the link tree on any of our social media channels. If anybody wants to reach out to us directly through email, they can get us at or me at hello at betwixt.life. That's life with an F. Um, and you can find the game on the App Store and Google Play. Just search betwixt, B-E-T-W-I-X-T, betwixt as in and between, and it will come up. And our website is also findable through the link tree. I say that because the URL is about to change from download.betwixt.life to just betwixt.life. Um, so we don't bother putting it in. Go click the link. Well, may our journey of life begin. Thank you so much, Hazel. Thank you so much for having me. Some final thoughts. When I said, may the journey of our minds begin, I really meant it. This is really important work that we're covering here on the podcast. If we truly want to be improved versions of ourselves, it begins by looking within, finding our truths, learning, changing, and growing. These types of changes don't happen overnight. Look at how Hazel had to learn about who she was at the very core with years of thought and introspection, and then she created the Betwixt app to help others to do the same. This is where it all begins. I'm now going to take some time to go through the app, thinking about my own journey of the mind, and we'll have Hazel back on the podcast to discuss what I learn on a future episode. Until then, as you listen to this episode, I hope that you started to think, who are you? How can you be a more improved version of yourself? What are your monsters that could possibly lead you to self-sabotage? 
Could you possibly make a change that could change your whole life? These are difficult questions. Like we noticed, it took Hazel years to uncover the answers for herself. I noticed my whoop device was saying, hey, you're not getting enough sleep and your strain is too high a whole year before I thought maybe I should do something different. It's pretty obvious now looking back that I needed to create more balance with my daily activities, but I missed the daily message until I noticed my feet and my legs were hurting, prompting me to make some changes. I hope this episode has made you think more about who you are in a deeper way than you would usually think with some possible ways that you could be more than you are today for yourself and others. And with that thought, we'll see you next week with some new ideas to take all of our results to new heights. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 